In today's episode, we cover how to work with your child to establish levels of independence regardless of where they fall on the spectrum. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Hi, y'all. Today we are talking about independence. And we picked this topic because it's pretty much a topic that impacts anybody who has an autistic child. And when we talk about independence, it really impacts people from any level because you can be talking about independence when it comes to a toddler or you could be talking about independence when it comes to a teenager. It's just a really wide net we're casting here. Right. That's what I was going to say. I mean, for us, the independence level that we're teaching our young girls is probably not the same that an older child would be taught because our daughters are two and three. So some of the independence is. Don't put that in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, when it comes to autism, I feel like that could be something for many ages, honestly. I mean, yeah. And that's, I mean, an ongoing fear, but that's another another topic entirely. (laughs) Right. So we picked this again because I feel like trying to raise a family where your children have the ability to learn some form of independence is really important. And I feel like it ties really closely to that hearth and home theme of ours, because what is it that most parents dream of for their children? And that's for them to be able to grow into adulthood into an independent human being. And I know that when it comes to autism, that's not necessarily going to be the case for everyone when it comes to, for example, the case of the autism that have a little more going on. But I think that you can still establish some level of independence, no matter how small that is. And I think that was one of our initial fears when we had just gotten the diagnosis, because we're projecting our fear almost indefinitely to the future, and we didn't know what the future really held for us. So, I mean, just the idea of will they be able to take care of themselves kind of after we're getting older and unable to like care for them or in, I mean, the case, like if we pass away or something, are they going to be okay on their own? So that just kind of leaves some things kind of up in the air. So, but I mean, I think there are definite ways that you are able to establish independence regardless of age, regardless of where they fall on the spectrum. And you can continuously kind of build off of that kind of as a foundation. When it comes to independence, some of the things that I think about personally are like when we had to establish with our young child how to be able to feed herself. And that was one form of being able to teach a skill that we knew was kind of critical for development. But there are other autistics who are older that are 16, 17, 20s, 30s that still don't quite have the ability to fully feed themselves. And I feel like that's okay, right? In the sense that it's okay that that is a realistic goal for a toddler who has these specific challenges, but that it may perhaps not be a realistic goal for another autistic individual in their 20s who's on the more quote-unquote severe side of things. That's fine. They don't have to have the same goal. You can still establish things within their specific capabilities. And I feel like that's what we mean when it comes to that. It's important not to rush the independence. Like you just said, being able to feed yourself. So I mean, that in itself has multiple stages that our young child would be going through. So how to hold the spoon, how to put food on the spoon, how to coordinate it to your mouth, how to tolerate the food in your mouth, how to chew it correctly. We, I mean, we had to go through feeding therapy to make sure that she wasn't just like pocketing or holding it in her, her cheek and then ultimately swallowing the food. So there are, there are many independent 
items or actions within that one stage of feeding yourself. So, I mean, it's okay, I think, to break down each individual component of what I would say as like a level of independence into smaller goals of you, if you will. Exactly. And even that example that you gave, the very first thing we had to teach her is how to realize or understand that she was even hungry to begin with. Right. So like these are each things that you could teach or create as little mini goals for your child as they are developing and growing and just cater them specifically to what your child's specific capabilities are and what their specific challenges are. Another example would be for my eldest child. An example of independence for her was walking. She couldn't crawl. She couldn't walk. And for us, we didn't know at the time if she would be able to because she had hypotonia. She had like her ankles buckling in and we thought she might end up having to have those like special feet shoe thing. I don't know what they're called. Even now she's able to walk, but still being able to like jump. That's still an ongoing, I mean, because of her core, being able to go upstairs. Yeah. She's almost four and she literally just learned how to jump like what, a month ago? Right, that she's actually, I mean, going, I mean, yeah, jumping. Airborne. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was always the idea of jumping without any lift, but now now we've got a little bit of lift under there. It's a kind of a long process, step by step. You kind of stick with it and you kind of work with them day by day. And I mean, ultimately, I mean, you kind of work your way to a little bit more independence as you go. And I think that this goes along with what we've been saying from the very beginning, which is always assume competence with your child. Even if you see every single day, there's no way my child can feed themselves. They don't have the muscle tone. They don't have this and that. Okay, fine. But in my perspective, I think continue to try and try to adapt in different ways. So if we really can't think that maybe they don't have enough muscle tone in their hands to lift up a spoon and feed themselves, get creative. Is there any sort of device or tool that we can install for them at the table that they could use? I think about those people who have had really cool inventions. So like people who are like quadriplegics that end up being able to move themselves on a wheelchair by blowing into a straw. Or you think about people who've lost arms and have been able to learn how to play the violin with their feet, for example. So it's like, I feel like there's always these obvious limitations. And it always takes a lot of like creativity and the ability to just kind of expand your mind into the unknown to be able to come up with some of these really unique solutions. Just I mean, as far as being able to play the violin, or even archery, I mean, we've seen the archery videos where phenomenal uh, archer is shooting with their legs because they have no hands, I think. But even before that was even done, everyone would say like, it's not possible. Like you can't shoot a bow and an arrow with just your feet until it was actually accomplished by someone. So, I mean, that's why I kind of like the idea of not giving up continuously working towards a goal and I mean, establishing independence where you can. Everything seems impossible until it's not. And I feel like that's why I try to stay positive and uplifting and just really, honestly, creativity is the key here. Because when it comes to figuring out our children's needs, for example, how did we figure out the things that work for them now? Some of that was through OTs who used their creativity, but then other things were solutions found through our creativity of trial and error and just being like, you know what, I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, nothing's changed. And if it does work, we might have just come up with a really great solution. So it never hurts to just try different things. And at the same time, if you do try something and it doesn't work, big whoop, you you wasted what, five minutes a day? The amount of time is so insignificant, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. 
Some examples of that are things like money. Like if you have a child who is maybe, quote unquote, less severe on the autism spectrum, you can perhaps teach them how to deal with money and how to go out into the world and be able to purchase things for themselves, how to be able to drive independently. These are things that I feel like parents are often really intimidated or scared by. They're like, I don't know how I feel about my autistic child going out there and driving when they have all these sensory issues. What if somebody honks the horn and it sends them into a sensory meltdown, which I think are like really valid fears, right? But I just feel like I personally don't want to limit my child when I know that the thing that I'm potentially limiting them from could help them out so much in life with something, for example, as driving. And I think a number of the obstacles that are in our path are ones that we create based out of our own fear. And and I, I, I mean, I do it too. I'm sure you do it as far as Sometimes like our girls kind of walking on their own without like holding our hand. Sometimes I'm a little fearful. I'm kind of watching over them. Are they going to be okay walking or are they going to start bolting for the bushes, trees, down the hill, anywhere that they could potentially get hurt? So I think I put up a lot of roadblocks and I have to consciously allow them to try on their own, which <laughs> even saying that, I know, I, I mean, I, I say one <laughs> thing, but I'm preaching another thing. But But I have to consciously say like, no, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more independence and let's see how you do. And I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, sometimes I'll give our oldest a little bit more independence. Okay, no, you don't have to hold Papa's hand. And then five, down seconds, she goes. five <laughs> seconds later, she's like down the driveway and it's like, oh, maybe she should have held Papa's hand. So, I mean, and it's just kind of a give or take, like just gauging how they do kind of as you're going through each activity of what you're trying to establish independence with. And it's definitely not easy. Like I know that for us, like I have a much easier time with it than you. I can tell because you're usually really stressed when it comes to giving them certain levels of independence. Oh my gosh. When we, when we go over to uh, my Our neighbor's in, house, my, my, or my in-laws, your, your, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like we were just over there the uh, other day with everyone and everyone was having like the, their drinks kind of on the table. And I was like following the little one around cause she likes to steal drinks. But I mean, <laughs> She's a klepto. <laughs> right. But no, she'll she'll like see a drink on the table and she'll pick it up and try and drink it. I mean, the amount of messes that I was just like cleaning up after her. But at the same time, I mean, even though she's stealing drinks, it teaches her how to be able to hold a cup and try and drink it on her own. Yeah. I mean, I would say probably what half the time she'll spill it on herself, but then half the time she is actually able to drink out of the cup. And that is something that we actually had debated about a little bit. Remember, I got them those special like training sippy cups and you were really stressed out about it because you're like, I know that they can't do this and they're going to make a huge mess. I'd rather them just do the straw cups. And then we came to that agreement that, you know, maybe it is better to just let the masses happen for a little bit as long as they try and maybe they'll get the hang of it. And I feel like now they can do it pretty well, but, you know, they still struggle at times. They still don't quite understand when the sensory water play comes out and they want to just dump it everywhere. Right. I mean, again, it's a give or take. It, it. I mean, it could be just their mood that day if they want to make a mess or if they actually are thirsty and want to <laughs> drink. Right. But like baby steps, right? right? So that is something that I wanted to talk about because I feel like when you are raising a special needs child, you go through so much, not sheltering necessarily, but you go through so much time where you are really analyzing the environment to make sure that you are protecting your child because you know the world doesn't quite understand your child and you know your child doesn't quite understand the world. 
which means there's bound to be some accidents, clashes, meltdowns, you know, dangerous things where they elope, all that sort of stuff. So it kind of puts us as parents into this like hyper vigilant type of, I don't know what you call it, like a setting. <laughs> you are basically the filter from, I guess, the world on both parts. The, I mean, the world from getting to your child and from your child from completely accessing the craziness and chaos that is the world. Right. I mean, You're like a firewall, basically. Yes. Yeah. So it's like we're basically like this firewall. And the problem is that we get so stuck in the mindset of being that firewall that we don't necessarily always know when is it okay to kind of like drop the wall? When is it okay to kind of leave a little door in the wall for our kid? That has always been kind of the struggle where we're trying to figure out, okay, we've learned from the very beginning that they have these difficulties. Therefore, we've built all these walls around to try to help them with that so they don't get injured because they can't quite walk so they can't run away so we put them on a leash and like all all those things that have validity to them but then you get used to it and i think that's the part where the independence comes in that you start questioning okay when is the time for me to then try again as opposed to just consistently always putting them on the leash. Well, you raise a good question. And that's why I was going to say, it's not just blind independence of every day, we're going to try the same thing, regardless of any type of external assistance that we were providing. So every day, if we give our daughter a cup of orange juice, red solo cup, so she has full access to proper spillage, if you will. <laughs> proper spillage. I like that. And every day we notice, oh, she spilled it on herself. Oh, she spilled it on herself. Oh, she spilled it on herself. You have to be a little bit more strategic, I think, with, okay, put a little bit of orange juice in the cup. And then if she is successful in drinking the cup, give praise, positive reinforcement, some type of motivational component. So she realizes like, oh, I did a good job. How can I replicate the action I just did to get additional praise? So I think that can be helpful in some instances to try and establish independence where she realizes, okay, if I do it like this last time when I did it like that, I was praised and my mom or dad gave me a hug or something. So I think if we're able to break down the individual steps into small goals for one task and then praise and just kind of get them excited for, oh, you did something on your own, like, yay, like get them excited. Then the next time they may be able to kind of translate that over. Yeah. So it's like incrementally increasing the challenge. And you can use that for anything like getting dressed for school. So if your child doesn't dress themselves, and I know with ours, we still struggle with the self-dressing, but making small goals first, like maybe just getting the socks on and working your way up towards adding pants, adding a shirt until they get to the point where they're fully dressing themselves. Or even like our youngest, like after we change her diaper, we're like, oh, do you want to throw the diaper in the trash? She's like super excited to like run off because she realizes like, oh, I am a big girl. I'm old enough to take the diaper to the trash and then come back. Or if something's on the floor and we're like, oh, can you get that for us? She'll like run over and grab it. So, I mean, she's able to understand a request. Oh, can you help mom or dad? And then she's able to run over and help us. So, I mean, even that, I mean, what, six months ago would have been kind of out of the question. Yeah. And I know that we've struggled a lot with some typical goals for their age. So, for example, our oldest is almost four and she still doesn't quite get the idea of picking up after herself or anything like that. Honestly, when she's eating, she still throws stuff on the floor. So there's these areas that we're still working with her, but we work incrementally. So we have that no 
no thank you bowl that we talked about. And if she does start throwing stuff on the floor, we do some hand over hand to help her clean it up with like a little cleanup song. And although it hasn't quite hit her yet, she is starting to respond when I, you know, kind of stand firmly and be like, no, you have to first clean it up, then play using that first then language. But even with the positive reinforcement for the no thank you bowl, because it used to be we had to introduce the no thank you bowl. Oh, you don't have to eat this, but you have to put it in the no thank you bowl and not throw it on the floor. Now you basically just say, oh, put it in the no thank you bowl. And then it jogs her memory and she's like, oh, that's right. I don't have to throw my pizza or whatever on the floor. I can just put it in the the no thank you bowl. And honestly, she never throws pizza. I was about to say, pizza's a bad example. (laughs) She loves pizza. Oh, she loves pizza. She's a mama's girl. Mama loves pizza. Yeah. But the, the other thing that came to mind is, I mean, I don't know about you guys out there, but like for me personally, I do struggle with that trying to figure out the balance. So one of the perfect examples I find is how we told you guys in a couple episodes back about elopement, we mentioned how the wonderful wagon has been an absolute lifesaver for us. It has given us so much independence for us as a family to be able to go do things independently. But I have started to notice some like second guessing that goes on. And the the reason I say that is because we have found the wonderful wagon so wonderful. <laughs> it's almost like it's in the name. I know, right? <laughs> that I actually feel like it may sometimes turn into a crutch. What I mean by that is it's so nice sometimes being able to just pack our kids in the wagon and go to a store and not have to worry about struggling to help them get around or the distractibility or anything like that, that we kind of lean on the wagon because honestly, it makes it so smooth, so easy. And then I start thinking about, well, what am I potentially robbing my child of if I consistently do that? If you never expose your child to being able to go to the store by themselves, being able to learn what is and isn't appropriate behavior in terms of maybe knocking things off the shelves or being able to just partake in picking out a toy and paying for it or something like that, then you also start missing out on some key developmental moments. For me, I think it's a matter of striking a balance. So using the wagon, but still having moments where we just throw on like the backpack leashes or something and give them the ability to still walk around and do things, just not maybe in those like high risk areas. Areas like when we're right next to a cliff at the park. <laughs> well, well, that's what I was just going to say because I was like, I think of like two different scenarios. Yes, going to like Walmart, for example, versus us going to the park where it's kind of on the river uh, and there's a cliff. <laughs> so it's kind of split when we go to the park. Some of the paths that we're able to walk on, they're able to kind of run a little bit more freely. But then obviously, when we are getting a little bit close to the water, we kind of tell them that we're going to go on like a like fun little like we call it the haunted bridge, and we kind of. <laughs> Turn it into almost like a fun little like roller coaster in the little wagon. So there are times like that where we utilize the wagon for assistance for us to basically keep them safe. But you're right at the store. Typically, the fear of any type of potential danger is much more mild. So you're right. We would probably have to find a better balance. So we're not just relying of any time we go out in society or you're outside the house, you're in the wagon because you're right. Then they wouldn't get exposure to, oh, walking around the store, looking down different aisles. And you won't actually know what they're capable of until you put them in a scenario where they are around these 
toys or whatever to see if they grab one off the shelf or what how they actually interact. Because I know when I go grocery shopping with our youngest, I don't use the wagon because that's in your car. I just put her in like the little shopping cart and she's kind of looking around, pointing at different things. So overall, I think in some scenarios, it probably is a better bet just to potentially struggle with them with like a leash and them kind of wandering off and grabbing things at the expense that that kind of gives them more exposure to the world around them. So I think that the theme basically with independence when it comes to raising autistic children is make sure that you provide your children with ample opportunity to continue to develop independently. And again, assessing your child's specific needs in terms of where they are in that level of independence, whether it's feeding themselves, walking independently, whether it's something as basic as being able to just pick up a toothbrush, just being able to look on the counter, see the toothbrush and pick it up if they're nonverbal or if they have other issues, like anything, anything can be a goal. You can always just build off of that initial minor goal. The key part is when you are working towards these skills of independence, to try to continue to be self-aware when you may or may not be kind of overcompensating for your child. And again, for us, the example is the wagon. And sometimes it takes a moment to kind of step back because you get so comfortable. You have a struggle, right? And the struggle may have taken months. I mean, I know that me with the wagon, I was at my wits end because I had just sprained my ankle. And so I basically was like, oh my gosh, this thing is a godsend. I'm going to use this forever. But now I'm self-reflecting of it. That's the important part. When we feel like we've found like a miracle solution, sometimes we need to just stop for a second and be like, wait a minute. I know this is really great, but should I just use it all the time or should I maybe pull it back and continue to kind of give my child a little bit of like rope to continue to attempt at least to continue to develop those skills? So basically what you're saying is your sprained ankle turned into your sprained ankle of the the wagon where now you're using that as your your sprained ankle or your crutch. Oh my gosh, that's such a bad metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I- I Yeah, but in a weird way, I guess that makes sense. but But I completely agree. I mean, we all have different- struggles that we're going with. We're trying to work with independence at different levels on different things. So, I mean, it is it is definitely a struggle, but I would definitely focus on kind of breaking down, focusing on small little goals in between each major significant independent item that you're working on. Hopefully with positive reinforcement, you can kind of encourage them to kind of do independent activities on their own a little bit more. Exactly. So again, just overall, just remember that when it comes to independence, it is very child specific and you can always just set small goals and work your way up. You should just never give in to the discouragement that sometimes happens when you don't see your child doing what you are expecting or what you hope they should do. And if it's not working, just change something up. Try to do something new. Any little thing as well that is accomplished should be celebrated. So don't don't stop celebrating the small wins and just continue to try and continue to push. And if you need to make adjustments, make adjustments. Try again. Come back to it later. Just, you know, it's life. We keep going. <laughs> never, never give up. <laughs> Something like that. And if you do need some additional support, we actually know someone who can help if you're in the Volusia, Florida area. I'd actually just like to give a shout out to Behavioral Foundation Centers who sponsored 50 autistic children in our Christmas wish gift drive. BFC is an autism family owned and operated ABA provider currently serving Volusia County, Florida. They offer a bunch of different services, including home and community services, as well as having centers in both Deltona and South Daytona. If you've been following along with our podcast, then you probably heard the episode on ABA where we basically said how picky we are with our ABA. 
And that is why we are very hesitant with it because ABA can easily go wrong. But I think that BFC is a great example of how ABA can go right. And that has a lot to do with the fact that BFC's owner is both an autistic individual and an autism mom herself. And so this helps them provide a very unique perspective and direction for the company that makes sure to promote individuality, acceptance, inclusion, and integration of all neurotypes. So BFC has really strict policies against any types of coercion. They don't use escape extinction, any forced compliance or forced transitions. And these are usually the procedures that that autistic adult community equates with bad ABA. BFC also supports all behavioral needs, including autism, but also things like Down syndrome, ADHD, anxiety, parent training, and a lot more. So if you feel like you have any of these issues, they're there to support you. They accept all major insurances, Medicaid that covers any sort of diagnoses that include behavioral problems, private insurances, etc. So if you happen to be in the area and you live in Florida, they also accept the Florida Empowerment Scholarship, which can be used for ABA services. And they also work with all sorts of problem behaviors, including skill deficits like potty training, eating healthy food options, motor skills, communication, school readiness, all that goodness. So BFC is also currently beginning a partnership with Exceptional Learning Institute this year. And in this service, they're going to also be able to provide individualized education environments and services to children who need something different than what the public education system can provide. So that's a great bonus for those of you in Florida who are looking for an alternative from the public school system. It's something kind of unique as well. So if you're in the area and you're just curious about ABA or maybe some of those educational opportunities, maybe consider giving Behavioral Foundation Centers a try. I really like it when they have an autistic adult involved in the process. I think that that helps make it more inclusive. And I believe that they have, you know, good intention behind it, as well as that specific perspective that you can only get if you have autism. So again, just want to give them a big shout out, a big thank you. And if you're in the area, go ahead and consider BFC. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope it was helpful. Bye. Thanks. Bye. To recap, we discussed how using incremental goals can assist in establishing independence with your child, as well as how celebrating each win, no matter how small, can make a big impact. We also noted that while continuing with what has worked in the past is a sure way to succeed, it's important to learn to find a balance between this comfort and allowing your child the space to develop independently. Tune in next time as we chat about marriage and co-parenting and answer questions such as, How might my relationships be impacted by my child's autism diagnosis? Is co-parenting possible? And what can I do to avoid being another divorce statistic? This is Embracing Autism.